0: Well, a big question on everyone's mind: How could Selena be missing for 20 days, with searches happening for 20 days, and search crews miss finding her body? But she wasn't there. Them sick bastards brought her back.
1: Our women are not turning up dead in fields or thrown over fences on their own accord, and that's what law enforcement wants the world to believe. This is Law and Order. The individual stories of systematic oppression. My name is Emma. I'm your host. Selena was the youngest of her mom's five kids. Jackie had three already, two sons, RJ and Preston, and a daughter, Tristan, when the twins were born on June 16th, 2003. Zoe was baby A, and Selena was baby B.
0: So as you can imagine, she was the quiet one. (laughs) You know, she waited her turn to come out. She let Zoe go first, and throughout their little short lives, that's how it always was. What about Zoe? What about Zoe? Making sure Zoe had everything she had, you know? Her first worry was Zoe. <sighs> was there the day they were born? I watched them being born. And I was there the day both of them were put in the ground, you know? It's just, uh, a tough, a tough story to tell, but um we gotta tell their story, you know? It's, it has to be done. And so then, you know, we got, um Selena, you know, like I said, she's just kind-hearted, always worried about herself, made sure she comes second. As I said, proof is in the when they were born, you know. Zoe's always been, was always the loud, out front, outgoing, you know, that one. Hey, I'm Zoe, this is Sal, you know, like that.
1: That's Selena's Aunt Cheryl. Cheryl was with Jackie in the delivery room and picked the girls' names, But tragedy struck this family when the girls were 11 years old, and Zoe unexpectedly took her own life. It's hard to fathom someone so young passing away by suicide, but it's not as rare as you might think. The number of children aged 5 to 11 in the U.S. who die by suicide has increased 15% every year from 2012 to 2017. But there are not a lot of studies about suicide in children. And there are even less studies specifically on the mental health and suicide rates of kids who grow up on the res. But there should be. Children on reservations are uniquely impacted by historical and ancestral trauma that has not been widely recognized. Since the start of colonization, tactics to assimilate Native Americans have targeted children and families. For decades, Native children were forcibly taken to boarding schools, far away from their family and tribe, and stripped of their culture with the stated purpose to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. And throughout the 60s and 70s, the federal government used the child welfare system to separate Native children from their families and tribe. These genocidal tactics have ripple effects that still affect kids on reservations today. However, I read that kids who are Zoe's age are usually not depressed over the existential bleakness of life, the way we as adults can be. Their brains usually aren't processing large, abstract thoughts like ancestral trauma, even though they're impacted by it. For children so young, depression and suicide, or suicide attempts, tend to be more directly related to a trauma or something upsetting they're experiencing firsthand. And kids on the res go through a lot, which isn't to say that parents on the res aren't good parents. But there's just kind of a lot of hopelessness. I don't know if this is just a Chicagoland area thing, but I remember when I was growing up, there was a park district for each neighborhood, and they offered a lot to the community that was free or inexpensive. We had different types of camps, festivals, and the park district had an ice rink, a track, indoor soccer field for the winter. There's nothing like that on the res. I think it's the case on a lot of reservations That you'd have to go into town to get to the closest playground or park, or a public pool or a library or movie theater, fast food place, but that's not that easy to get into town. A lot of people don't have cars or gas money. And on the res itself, there just isn't much there. And what is there is kind of falling apart. I don't love this phrasing, but as Gallup Independent put it, living conditions on the res are comparable to a third world country. And what's kind of fucked up is that the tribes do get money from the federal government, but there's very little oversight with that money. It's basically all in the hands of the tribal government. And it seems like it ends up paying the members of the tribal government a nice salary, but doesn't really go towards building anything for the community. Basketball is a really big thing. But other than that, there isn't much for young people to be hopeful for or excited about. And because there are no jobs on the res either... A lot of families and children are impacted by poverty and food insecurity. And kids on the res grow up surrounded by a lot of violence and loss. In previous episodes, I've talked about the insane statistics related to the MMIW epidemic and violence to Native women, and about how Native Americans are the ethnic group killed by police at the highest rate. And also, Native Americans experience violent crime at a rate two and a half times higher than the national average, and homicide rates are twice as high. Rates of sickness like cancer, tuberculosis, and diabetes are also much higher than the national average. In Montana, there's a 15-year difference in life expectancy between Native American and white people. Kids on reservations experience a lot of loss. And that's reflected in really high rates of suicide. Some reservations have youth suicide rates that are three times the national average. On some reservations, that rate is 10 times the national average. And as far as any kind of mental health care or therapy, Indian Health Services, or IHS, provides health care on reservations. But IHS is wildly underfunded. And I've heard oftentimes staffed with racist doctors. Mental health treatment, especially for children, is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It's more ambiguous and would need resources and dedicated doctors, which IHS doesn't have. So as shocking as it is to think of an 11-year-old child taking their own life... Suicide rates among Native American children are at a crisis level, with no recourse in sight. Zoe's death seemed to come as a shock to those in her life. She was the youngest person to die by suicide in Montana in a decade, so there was some local news coverage when she passed away. And credit to Zoe's school, they conducted an extremely thorough investigation in the aftermath of her suicide, And that investigation determined that Zoe thankfully was not being bullied. Zoe is remembered as a happy girl who loved camping, roller skating, riding horses and cross country running. She was grieved by many friends and deeply missed by her family. To lose a child so young and in this way is more pain than any family should ever have to experience in a lifetime. But unfortunately, three years after Zoe passed away, tragedy struck this family yet again when Selena's 24-year-old brother, Preston Bell, was shot to death by Billings police. A lot of what I'm about to tell you comes from the coroner's inquest into Preston's death. A coroner's inquest is a kind of trial that is mandatory in Montana whenever an officer kills someone. But in Yellowstone County, where Billings is, everything is handled internally. There's a jury of Billings' residents at the inquest, but that jury is hand-picked by the county attorney. And also, remember that Billings is 90% white. So with the inquest into Preston's death, the jury was not a jury of his peers. It was a jury of white men at least twice his age. Also, coroner's inquests in this county just can't really be a fair trial because everything is handled internally. The county attorney ultimately makes the call whether to press charges or not, based on the determination of the jury. But the county attorney works with Billings cops all the time. If there was an outside investigator, there wouldn't be that same inherent conflict of interest. Also, someone from the outside might be able to rule fairly without living in fear of retaliation from the Billings PD. The whole process is messed up and will always be unfair to the victim. So with that disclaimer, let's get into what happened. On the night of November 18th, 2017, Preston's ex-girlfriend called the police. She and Preston had recently broken up, and he came to her apartment upset and rammed the truck he was driving into her car, which was parked and unoccupied. When police arrived, Preston drove off. He didn't speed off, he just drove away, and the police decided to start a chase. But what the cops didn't seem to be worried about in that moment was Preston's ex-girlfriend, who had called in the first place. Instead of engaging in a car chase, the police could have checked on his ex-girlfriend to see what kind of help she wanted. If I were in her position, the last thing I would want is for the police to start a car chase with an ex who was already upset. And also, maybe if they had checked on his ex-girlfriend, the cops would have realized that they didn't need to chase Preston. She probably would have given the cops his name, and they could have caught up with him later, in a less heated moment. This wasn't urgent. He wasn't a threat to society. In fact, what the cops did here was a threat to society. Because car chases are actually one of the most deadly methods of police force, especially for innocent bystanders. Police chases kill more people than lightning strikes, tornadoes, and hurricanes combined. And what makes this chase even worse is that we know that the cops weren't pursuing Preston because he rammed into his ex-girlfriend's empty car. The cops don't care about domestic disputes. They prove that time and time again. Cops are ruled by their own ego. When Preston drove off, they felt disrespected. So they decided not only to put Preston in unnecessary danger, but to put everyone in unnecessary danger over their own hurt feelings. If you've ever worked in retail or food service, you know what it's like to be disrespected on the job. So I wish cops would grow up and handle life like the rest of us do, rather than engaging in these deadly antics. But this unnecessary chase went on for about an hour. Preston did briefly shake the police but they caught up with him before too long. And when they did, he was sitting in the car parked outside of his mom's house. Driver, show me your hand. What you're hearing is audio from one of the cops' dash cams. There's video as well. I'll link to it in the show notes. The cops come out of their patrol cars with guns drawn. They surround Preston's truck. For a couple minutes, there's no response. the car turns on but doesn't move a cop walks over and puts spikes behind the tires and then another cop goes around to the driver's side window reaches in and sprays pepper spray which would have hit Preston at point blank range directly in the face and let's pause again here there were already spikes behind the tires they had the car surrounded What was the point of pepper-spraying him at point-blank range? And what did they think was going to happen when they did that? They knew they were throwing gasoline on a fire. So Preston slammed the car in reverse, probably more out of instinct than anything, and started to drive forward, away from the cops. But the car couldn't have rolled more than a foot before five officers opened fire. Within six seconds, they fired 74 rounds and Preston was hit 17 times. And then they pulled him out of the car and handcuffed him. Preston didn't have a gun, but still the shooting was ruled justified at the coroner's inquest with the rationale that he was using his car as a deadly weapon. The cops said that they shot him because they feared for their lives. All of the officers involved were cleared and returned to work. But here's the thing people who truly fear for their lives don't act this way. You can't fear for your life in a fight that you started and that you could walk away from. And if you're truly scared that a car is going to run you over and kill you, you move. Preston wasn't trying to hit the cops with his car, he was trying to run away. And also, the cops put themselves in this situation. It didn't need to escalate to this point. They were dealing with a young guy going through a breakup who did something stupid, but ultimately not violent. And they chased him and swarmed him like this was the Osama bin Laden raid. And this is more generally speaking, but it bothers me on such a deep level when the cops go in, guns blazing and screaming like that. Not even just the specific five cops who shot Preston, but just cops in general. Part of me knows that I'll likely never be in this situation as a white woman. But also, if I ever was, they would shoot me dead for sure. Because I don't do well under pressure. So if I had guns pointing at me, and five men screaming at me like that, I really don't know what I would do. I think that instinct would take over at that point. An instinct isn't always rational, especially in life or death situations. And I want to remind you that Preston was 24 years old when this happened. His brain was literally not even fully developed yet. People learn and grow from the mistakes they make, and he had his whole life ahead of him until it was senselessly taken by Billings PD. Preston also had two children, who have been robbed of being able to really know their father. His son and daughter were both very young when he passed away. So Preston is not the only victim of the Billings PD. Because the police couldn't stand down, because they are trained not to stand down, two innocent children will have to carry the weight of this loss and trauma for the rest of their lives. Preston is described as loving, caring, and talented. He enjoyed playing basketball with his friends and cousins. Preston's son and daughter were the pride and joy of his life, and he was very much loved by his family. And sadly, it wouldn't be long before this family would once again encounter systemic injustice in Billings. On the night of July 28, 2018... Selena's older sister Tristan was out with friends on the Rims, a popular hangout spot in Billings. I never got a chance to go over there, but looking at it on a map, it's on the southwest edge of Billings, but still very much in town. There are businesses, like fast food spots and gas stations, as well as an airport not too far away. Tristan was struck by a passing car on the side of Highway 3. Surveillance footage shows that after hitting Tristan... The driver got out of his car and walked up to her. And then after three minutes, he got back in his car and drove away. Police told local media that the driver's cell phone was dead, and he fled the scene to find a phone to call 911. But this happened in Central Billings. The driver obviously didn't need to go all the way home to find a phone. But this ludicrous narrative was accepted by Billings PD. Because this is what the Billings PD does. They do whatever they want with no consequences because they know that they can. And you can probably guess why cops chased down and killed Preston Bell for ramming into an empty car, but never arrested the man who killed Tristan and then ran like a coward. The driver who killed Tristan is white. Tristan's family basically handed the county attorney an open and shut case. Her family got the surveillance footage, identified the driver, and gathered multiple witness statements. But from what Cheryl told me, it seems like the police were pretty determined to protect the driver and his family.
0: Don't the, don't the police have surveillance of him hitting her, getting out of the car,
1: and then getting yeah. back in and
0: leaving? everything. We have witnesses. They try to throw the um, witnesses in jail.
1: Them. And here's what she had to say about the sheriff's response to the family pushing for justice.
0: When I get when I do stuff and they, the sheriff has to go, has to force himself to go out there. Probably goes out to Acton, Montana, and tells that white farmer, "Oh, the Indians are acting up because that's what the white farmer tells his neighbors." Oh, the Indians are acting up about my
1: son hitting that Indian. Your son fucking killed her. He didn't just hit her. He killed her. Say it out loud. The county attorney's office opened an investigation, and for three long years, Tristan's family waited for an update. In July of 2021, the Yellowstone County attorney met with Tristan's family to inform them that no criminal charges would be filed against the driver. They said that the driver was justified in fleeing the scene because he feared for his life. Feared for his life. The driver feared for his life, they said. After hitting a woman and leaving her dead on the side of the road, somehow he feared for his life. The county attorney was able to look Tristan's mother and aunt in the face and tell them that a white man's fear was more important than their girl's life. The police serve and protect white people at the expense of native lives. And that has been the case for hundreds of years. And if that is not a genocide, I don't know what is. Tristan is remembered as an adventurous girl and a natural caregiver. She worked in an elementary school and was loved by many children. She liked to bead, she loved hair and makeup, and her pet chihuahua named Sweetness. She was a beloved daughter and niece, and a caring big sister. She was taken at the young age of 22. And then, less than two years later, Selena passed away, and Jackie buried and mourned her fourth child. I don't think I need to emphasize how devastating that must be. But one thing I do want to say, just like a cancer patient should not have to go thousands of dollars in debt to treat their sickness, Grieving families shouldn't have to go thousands of dollars in debt to bury their loved ones. Because at this time, Jackie had three funeral bills racked up. She was still
0: paying on the two kids before. We're lucky that that funeral home took foul because they knew us on a personal level. How sad is that? They already did three of our kids, so they knew us.
1: I remember there was a two-week period where I was staying with this girl on Rocky Boy, another res in Montana. And within that two-week period, three people she knew passed away unexpectedly. And one of those people was a really close friend of hers, who was only 37 years old. She passed away of a fentanyl overdose. And to add insult to injury, an ambulance didn't arrive until four hours after this woman's mom found her and called 911. So of course the girl I was staying with took it really hard. And I remember the day after it happened... We were sitting together smoking a cigarette, and she said to me, I'm just so tired of death. I haven't met any mothers who have lost four children like Selena's mom, but I've met way too many moms who have lost a child or a grandchild, way too many kids who have lost a sibling or a parent or both, way too many teenagers who have buried a close friend. The church on the rez seems to be a revolving door of funerals. But still, a lot of people don't even know this is happening, and nobody is doing anything about it. And it's not hard to see the way these traumas overlap one another. Cheryl and Jackie were fighting hard to get justice for Tristan when Selena went missing. Selena's Facebook profile picture was of her sister, with an MMIW frame. Her cover photo is of Preston. And before she went missing, Selena participated in a march for another Indigenous girl, who was recently found deceased in Hardin. It just never ends. Back when I was in Iowa and doing this remotely, people would tell me that it's a totally different world on the res, a different world than I was probably used to. And I would ask why, and they would say it's hard to explain how things are, unless you're here. I didn't get it at the time, but I think I do now, at least a little bit. I still can't wrap my head around it at times, but I see the normalcy of trauma-filled lives on the res. And I don't have the answers, but something has to change. When you look at photos of Selena, she looks like your average high school pretty and popular girl. It's hard to imagine experiencing so much by the age of 16 and not being broken by it. But it sounds like that's just who Selena was as a person. She was strong in the way that sometimes is the hardest. She chose to be happy and unselfish. She kept her siblings close in her heart, but still found joy in life.
0: You know, when she lost Zoe, it was uh, was really hard. Hard for all of us and we thought it would be uh, you know we worried about Selena and then we had time to pull yourself together and you know we start focusing on Selena we realized the whole time Selena was taking care of us you know Mm -hmm. she she was the strongest out of us when that happened and she goes on and she leaves as a couple a brother and a sister again you know and the same thing she was the strongest out of all of us she was just keep telling us encouraging things and positive things and telling us we got you know make plans, we gotta make plans, we gotta keep moving, you know, stuff like that. She didn't wanna be stuck in grief. You know, she wanted us to keep keep living.
1: If you came to this podcast only to hear Selena's story, I hope this episode wasn't a letdown for you. But I think that the stories of Zoe, Preston, and Tristan Are a part of Selena's story because they're all a part of one another. They all came from the same mom. But next time, we will jump back to January of 2020, when Selena was found less than a mile from the rest stop. And spoiler alert if you haven't figured it out already, this podcast isn't going to end with me telling you what happened to Selena. I don't know. What the police say happened is that she wandered into the field, froze to death, and was overlooked by the extensive searches that started on the very day she went missing. But is that even possible? Let's talk about it next time. Thank you for listening to Law in Order, Systematic Oppression Through the Lens of Individual Stories. Selena, Not Afraid's story continues next week. Huge thank you and appreciation to Cheryl and Terrell and to everyone who has helped or hosted me on this journey. The voices in the intro belong to Cheryl Horn and Desi Rodriguez-Lone Bear. If you like what you heard, I would love for you to subscribe, rate, tell a friend, or leave an iTunes review. Get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or email law order Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.